Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 95. We are getting very close to that 100 mark. Very exciting. Uh, nothing really to mention off the top today. We uh, covered five movies this week, four of which are from 2023. So we are reveling in... The, this year right now and the four from 2023 are all pretty bleak it's true there's so a lo- that says something about now there's a lot of bleak movies and a lot of grief movies coming out and i'm not gonna say we're not into it <laughs> and i'm not gonna say that's not where the world's at truly let's get into it we kick things off by going to metro cinema and seeing the 2023 drama slash thriller the royal hotel it was directed by kitty green as well as written by Kitty Green and Oscar Redding. It stars Julia Garner as Hannah, Jessica Henwick as Liv, Daniel Henshaw as Dolly, and Hugo Weaving as Billy, who was a bit of a surprise for you specifically. Yeah, I didn't figure out that that was him. Too much beard. (laughs) A lot of beard and a lot of Australian accent, which we don't get a lot of from Hugo Weaving. Uh, synopsis, backpackers Hannah and Liv take a job in a remote Australian pub for some extra cash and are confronted with a bunch of unruly locals and a situation that grows rapidly out of their control. What do you think of the Royal Hotel? I found this movie really stressful. Very stressful. It was one that I, um, I wouldn't say I was like looking forward to, but it was on my radar. We thought about trying to see it at Cineplex, but we hate Cineplex. Um... And then when it was coming to Metro, it was like, yeah, this had been on my radar. Let's let's make a point of going out to see it. Um, and that's always lovely because the audiences are so good. Um, 99% of the time at Metro. And it was a small audience, but just allowed that, that quiet from everybody allowed that tension and that stress to really 
seep in Mm -hmm. and I was really locked into this like escalating sense of claustrophobia and inescapability, particularly for the character of Hannah. Yeah, that's a that's a really great way to describe all of that. Yeah, this was the definition of a edge of your seat thriller for me. I was so tense for nearly the entire runtime. And yeah, again, through the character of Hannah, there's just so it's such a difficult thing to watch your protagonists make decisions or be pulled into directions of decisions that you wouldn't make in that situation. And so you're sitting there just going, no, 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 please no. Yeah, there's been a lot of, this movie is not particularly well-liked generally on the internet. And part of me thinks that's review bombing from folks who are like criticizing the fact, or like criticizing, not the word, right word, but angry at the fact that the movie is a critique of like how men treat women. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no. God forbid. And then in that, like folks who are critiquing it are often saying like it does just doesn't feel real. Well, for me, I feel like if you watch the film kind of like Shiva Baby through like a horror movie lens Mm -hmm. and you say this isn't a horror movie, but it's using the genre conventions of a horror movie to explore something else, um, then I think you can suspend your disbelief in a way that heightens what's happening in the film because I didn't find it unbelievable. I think this kind of stuff happens. Um, perhaps it gets hyperbolic at times, um, particularly like as the tension ratchets up. But if you watch it through that lens of like, yeah, in a horror movie, we're used to the people making decisions we wouldn't agree with. Yeah. And we're used to being like, how do you not see what's happening right in front of you? But I think using that lens to show that that also happens in real life. We're like, you know, for the sake of politeness or for the sake of money or for the sake of, you know, there aren't other options. People make choices that we think they shouldn't make, but in the moment that's what feels like the only thing they can do to them. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is that it's so difficult to watch them make decisions you wouldn't make, but you fully understand, maybe not fully, but you have an understanding of why they would be making those decisions given the circumstances that they're in. And I think that to what you're saying with it, pulling from the horror genre and some of the devices that it uses, it actually makes this movie real smart. Yeah. And fun on, well, yeah, I don't know about fun. I was pretty tense. And then I was like really scared. <laughs> like there's yeah. a point where I was like, this is scary. Yeah. Truly scary stuff um, because it's like, like you said, it's not too divorced from reality. No. And in fact, you know, I was seeing people like really, really review bombing the crap out of this. And I don't want to take away from any like folks who just genuinely didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But I do want to like encourage people to think about like the movies that you're really not liking that perhaps are similar to other movies you liked. Who made the movie you liked and who made the movie you didn't like? And who was the movie you liked focused on and who was the movie you didn't like focused on? And does that have something to do with gender and or race? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Fair question. Just, you know, self-reflection's good. But um, in reading that, I found out that this is actually inspired by a documentary film called Hotel Coolgardie, um, which I then showed you the trailer for. And really, some of the stuff that happens in this movie is beat for beat in yeah. the documentary. And in fact, you can really tell that they particularly modeled um, the like above the bar, ho- like 
living space looks almost identical to the one in the documentary. Yeah. Um, and in fact, some of the stuff in the documentary, I was like, was almost more upsetting, even in just the trailer that we watched. So this isn't coming out of nowhere. And I would I would be interested in seeing if people who didn't like the um, this movie for it, quote unquote, not being realistic, if they watch the documentary, would they feel the same way? Now, I don't feel like I need to watch the documentary because I watched this movie and mm. I, I get it. And even watching the trailer for the documentary was like, Really okay. upsetting. Yeah. Um, but you know. On a on a lighter note, Hannah and Liv's fashion was yeah. awesome. I was like, I would wear literally everything that they are wearing in this movie. And it also feels like affordable and comfortable and like realistic fashion. Yeah. Which I, I liked. I was like, oh, I I want to go out and buy a bunch of oversized button-ups from the thrift store, short sleeve button-ups. With just like a cool little tank underneath and and shorts. I'm going to wear that all summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And it feels weird complimenting on how babely they are given the content <laughs> of this movie. But they are a couple of babely babes with excellent fashions. But something I didn't realize, you probably realized. I was like, Jessica Henwick, like oh, I yeah. recognize you from something somewhere. She's a major babe crush of mine. So I, yeah, I knew who she was and what she was from. But uh, specifically The Matrix. Yeah, uh, she's Bunny in the Matrix. Yeah, 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 I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. She was in something else recently that we saw where I was like, I I have a big crush on her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just want to kiss you and kiss you and kiss you. <laughs> always, everyone. Uh, oh, she's been in Game of Thrones, but that's not what I'm thinking of. Cause yeah, I, right, I saw that. Oh, she was in The Glass Onion. That's what I'm thinking of. Where mm. I was like, oh, there's the person from The Matrix that I had a crush on. Um, <laughs> but cool to see her in a role that's a little bit bigger. Because mm -hmm. I was a little disappointed in how small that role in the Matrix was because she's so cool in the trailer. Mm -hmm. um, the trailer for Resurrections was very, very cool. Yeah, it was a really good trailer. And then, you know, COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was a tense, I thought scary, I thought interesting. I liked when it got hyperbolic because I like the horror genre and I thought it was playing within that. Um, like I said, in a, in a similar way to the way Shiva Baby is in that in that not a horror movie, horror movie kind of way. Like it's using the conventions of horror in a movie that isn't a horror movie. I liked it. I don't think I'd watch it a million times, but I'm really glad I saw it. Yeah. Like I think it subverted a few expectations for me. Uh, I, I agree with everything that you said. I really hate aggressive men doing aggressive things. As do most people, I would hope. And, you know, I I didn't experience what, like, they are experiencing. But I worked in a bowling alley that had a bar. And, like, we had men who would um, come in and have, like, lunch. Or, like, on Fridays they would come after work um, because it was in, like, this kind of industrial part of the town. Um, and then also we had, like, a liquor night. And it wasn't so far off from this the way that people talked to me. So, like, I just don't get the it's not realistic thing. Well, it's even just the little power trippy things. And admittedly, it's stuff that I did when I was a younger person. Like, I know a big thing, for example, on YouTube is videos of couples where the man is constantly scaring the woman and how funny her reactions are. But the reason that women are scared when men do this to them is because women have to be scared of men. And should be scared of men. And I think exploiting that is really fucked up. 
Yeah. I think I said that to you really early in our relationship. I said, if you keep scaring me, we're not dating anymore. Like this is like, I'm legitimately scared of being murdered by a man. So please don't jump out at me out of nowhere. Like that's, it's not funny to me. And the fact that it's funny to you just hurts my feelings. So, and and you don't anymore and that's good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but even there's a moment in this movie where a man goes to hand, I I think it was Hannah something and then he pulls it away last minute and he keeps doing it. So it's just like toying with her and it feels so like predatory. Well, and I leaned over to you that we almost never, ever whisper to each other in the theater. But sometimes if it's like it's a highly specific moment and I need you to know, I leaned over to you and I said, I fucking hate when people do this. Like if my students do this and it's always boys. Of course. I just walk away. Put it on my desk. Yeah. I'm not engaging in that. The second that you do like a, I mean, it's fine if it's like go for a high five and then like too cool because that's that's funny. But like you play that up, right? You're like, oh yeah, like run the hand through the hair or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But this like, oh, here's the pen. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. I'm like, that's just, it's a power trip and it's belittling and it's just mean. Like there's no other point to it. So I won't engage in it. Yeah. If anything, you're just taking any trust that I have for you and it's just diminished every time you pull it away. (laughs) Yeah. So So there's a lot of little moments like that. And yes, it ratchets up to a point where perhaps for some folks it feels like, well, it wouldn't get that far. And it's like, but I think that's kind of the point of the movie is looking at how these everyday microaggressions, these everyday little moments that certain folks might think are innocuous actually aren't and what they can build towards, especially when then you, take this setting of like a highly isolated place like where they filmed the the town's called Yatina there's only nine people who live there <laughs> like in real mm, life that's nice. so you know you're putting it in this like pressure cooker and I thought it was fascinating I thought it was horrifying I thought it was well acted um, and I'm really glad I saw it I agree I, I, I go back to what you said kind of think about the f- if, if you really didn't like this film did you l- and you think it's not realistic did you like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how that ended? Because if we're talking about ratcheting things up to a point that's unrealistic, that's a fair comparison. And thinking about like who is the target of the violence and who is the perpetrator of the violence. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I know full well that I will pee pee poo poo Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan and other people like that, but I don't think they need me to prop them up. <laughs> they got enough of those. They got enough of that. They got enough white pee-pees behind them to, uh, to do that for them. Exactly. All right. How did Royal Hotel make you feel? It made me feel stressed out and afraid of men. And yes, that <laughs> is a citation to Vivek Shreya um, and the great little pocketbook, I'm Afraid of Men. <laughs> you? Uh, a consistent yearning for reprieve from all of the stress. <laughs> and they don't really give you much of that. Okay, we went right back into something else that's stressful. Um, we'd been looking forward to watching this and... Didn't go out to see it in the theater, but it came to Netflix very quickly as it was meant to. We watched the 2023 comedy drama. Comedy with perhaps. A drama with a couple jokes. (laughs) A drama with a purposeful use of discomforting humor. May, December. It was directed by Todd Haynes and written by Sammy Birch and Alex Machanek. It stars Natalie Portman as Elizabeth, Julianne Moore as Gracie, and Charles Melton as Joel Yu. The synopsis. 
20 years after their notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple buckles under pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. What did you think of May, December? This was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. I was very excited for it. And coming out of the festivals, I had heard a lot of rumblings that people were really liking this film. I'm also firmly on both the Todd Haynes train after having seen a few of his films. We've even covered a couple on the show. Uh, as well as being firmly on the Julianne Moore train. I always liked her, but since seeing most recently Safe, I think that something like that solidified it, and then revisiting some stuff like we did with Children of Men last week even further solidified how amazing she is. We didn't watch a trailer for this, so I didn't really know what it was about, and I'm also unfamiliar with the term May-December, which... Maybe some of you are that are listening as well. So the term May-December, it's a designation of a marriage or romantic relationship between a young person and a person who is considerably older. So I, I didn't have that context going in. I didn't even know May-December was a term for that. So going in, I'm like, oh, I see what this is about. Well, yeah, it was... It's it's interesting to me that you say this was one of your most anticipated movies of the year, but you knew nothing about it. Yeah. Um, I also didn't know anything about it, but I did know that the term May-December means that. Um, it's especially used in like older films, like older, older films, like classic Hollywood films for a May-December romance with like an older man and like a 20-something-year-old woman, right? Like it's not typically about underage people, but it would be like, Leonardo DiCaprio and the people he's dating. Like they're, me, they're adults. Um, it makes me feel weird that it was used as like a marketing thing. Like come see a May-December romance. Well, I'm not saying it was. Okay. I don't actually know that. I'm just saying I know the term. Gotcha. And I feel like that's where I know it from. Mm. Um, and I don't feel like it's always been used in a really derogatory way. Right. Because when you think about it. Like I guess it's an idiom. Meaning like you can't discern the meaning from. The words itself, but May, December, I think what it's suggesting is like born in May, born in December. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's like a span of months in between. So I did know that I did know that about it. But as soon as the movie started, I realized I knew exactly what real life case if we want to call it a case, real life crime that this was clearly using as inspiration. Um, and I said to him, like, oh, this is Mary Kay Letourneau. And you were like, I don't know who that is. No idea. Um, and I was like, no, this definitely is. And then I showed you some like videos after and you were like, yeah, obviously it's it's based on that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we didn't know anything about it. I feel like this is a film. I've heard some people online say like, know as little about it going in as possible. And yes, but also I feel like this could be a pretty damn triggering movie if you didn't know what it was about. Yes. Um, and especially because I think Todd Haynes is particularly interested in using his film to critique and reflect and get the audience to think about the way these kinds of things are portrayed over time and in different mediums, whether it's like true crime or tabloids or like lifetime movies kind of thing. Um, and he's playing within that melodrama as a, as a point of critique. Um, but that could be deeply uncomfortable if you're somebody who these experiences are 
something that you've experienced or that people that you love have experienced um, in a harmful way, then yeah, it's, I don't know that not knowing anything going into this would be such a good idea. Yeah. I think that that's a very good call. Getting into my experience and watching the film. I mean, immediate thought was that it just got under my skin and just made me feel so yucky. It made me kind of want to take a shower when it was done. Yeah. Because uh, the themes, like you said, they're they're not pleasant. But the performances absolutely drew me in. That Riverdale boy delivers one of the most heartbreaking lines in the whole movie. And I feel like he does such a great job. I should know what what's his actual name. <laughs> Shouldn't just refer to him as the uh, Riverdale. Charles boy. Melton, I think. Yeah. Um, and he's getting a lot of recognition. So that, that's that's excellent for him. And there's so many moments throughout the movie and specific lines that just made me want to curl into myself and die just with how ucky yucky they were. It was, it was, there was some difficult to sit through even just moments of dialogue. And I think that the way that Todd Haynes directs it and gets the performances that he gets and that are delivered by the actors just adds to the whole thing like it is literally just the cream of the crop in terms of performances and i think the biggest takeaway that i'm going to have from the whole thing is just the craft because jesus christ this is a gorgeous movie yeah i mean i'm i've talked about this a few times on the show but i'm not immediately adept at visual analysis and the visual components of a film are not always immediately what i understand or see I might be like, wow, that looked incredible, but I couldn't necessarily explain to you why. But I feel like both in watching a lot more movies than we have in the past, um, although we've always both watched a lot of movies, in talking about them on our show, but then also in the last seven years, me teaching film, I've become a lot stronger as a visual analyst. Mm. I'm like, I think you would agree that when a movie's done, I can almost always immediately talk about the thematics of it, mm-hmm. like the character and the theme and the dialogue and that kind of stuff, but I'm not always as fast on, like you often, we've talked about this on the show a ton, you'll turn to me and be like, wow, that one and I'm like, that was a one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um But in this film, and I think because it's working with stillness a lot, so I think I struggle a little bit more visually, and this is one of the reasons I struggle with action movies, when the visuals are happening quickly. Like a, a great example of this is, if we're looking, say, on Netflix on like new new and upcoming, you can flip through those so fast. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. But on the opposite end, if we're reading an article, I'm reading it much faster than you, right? So you just can pick up on things visually. You can process that faster than I can, and I can process the written word faster than you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because so much of this film is still like static shots, it gives me as a as somebody looking at the film visually, more time to really soak in everything that's happening in the shot because we're on that frame for so long. Right. Um, and I found that I got so much out of it visually. There's a scene where uh, Gracie's daughter is getting a dress for prom that I thought was one of the most stunning and deeply uncomfortable, but stunning scenes I've, seen in a long time it's the it's the scene of the year (laughs) it's incredible and so well acted and i was just really engaged with how much i was getting out of it visually and i think yes i've improved as a visual analyst but also 
because it's slow and it's simmering, it gives me that kind of ability to really think about it. I think that's really cool. I'm I'm happy that you were able to kind of take that away and have that reflection on it. Because yeah, it was I think you initiated the conversation about these like specifically there's a lot of shots that have to do with mirrors throughout the film. But it was it it was so amazing to get so much out of this visually and I think that you might have brought this up when we were talking about it after, but it does have this dreamlike quality throughout the whole thing, like a surreality to it a little bit. And these looking into mirrors and these odd angles and seemingly the characters looking directly into camera as if it is a mirror, it it feels just, it feels so dreamy. And if it really kind of then, disarms yeah. you a little bit. But the undercurrent of that is nightmare, right? Like it's, yeah. it's yeah, the yeah, yeah. visual language of a dream, but the content is a nightmare. Um, and I think that is speaking a lot to the narrative of this story, both in real life and, and in this film and the way Todd Haynes is using melodrama and, and that kind of stuff as a, as a critique, as a lens. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now I, I don't think we can talk about May, December without bringing up this question of camp that has taken the cinephile community uh, by storm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read you the definition of camp from Wikipedia. Okay. And tell me what you think. So on Wikipedia and just the, it's a, it's a long article, but the just top bit camp quote is an aesthetic style and sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. Camp aesthetics disrupt many of modernism's notions of what art is and what can be classified as high art by inverting aesthetic attributes such as beauty, value, and taste through an invitation of a different kind of apprehension and consumption. Camp can also be a social practice and function as a style and performance identity for several types of entertainment, including film, cabaret, and pantomime. Where high art necessarily incorporates beauty and value, camp necessarily needs to be lively, audacious, and dynamic. The visual style is closely associated with gay culture. Camp art is related to and often confused with kitsch, and things with camp appeal may be described as cheesy. In 1909, Oxford English Dictionary defined camp as ostentatious, exaggerated, affected, theatrical, effeminate, or homosexual behavior, and by the middle of the 1970s, camp was defined by the college edition of Webster's New World Dictionary as banality, mediocrity, artifice, and ostentation so extreme as to amuse or have a perversely sophisticated appeal. The American writer Susan Sontag's essay Notes on Camp, 1964, emphasized its key elements as artifice, frivolity, naive middle-class pretentiousness, and shocking excess. Thoughts? <laughs> I don't think that that definition, at least for me, fits in with the description of this. Like, I always, I think of camp and I think of Rocky Horror Picture Show, or I think of a couple weeks ago or last week we watched Dr. Caligari. I think that the word of the day for this for this film for May December is melodrama. Like that's what I that's what I got from it. But there is this weird thing happening right now where it seems like any dramatic movie that has a little bit of humor in it is being kind of regarded as camp, which I find really interesting. Yeah, it's so 
I, there's a really interesting article online and I'll link to the whole thing because we don't have time to read it. It's called it's called The Many Layers of May December by Aja Romano and it's on Vox. I often like Vox's stuff. Yeah, they do and a good job. There's a specific section on camp where the bolded like subheading is May December isn't camp, but thinking about it through the lens of camp is useful. Um, and I'm just going to read a portion of it. So camp is what happens when societal expectations collide with a character or a persona who can't perform those expectations convincingly. Instead, their attempt at performance unwittingly reveals and magnifies the artifice of those expectations. Camp is closely related to queer identity and performance, which exposes the artifice of heteronormativity. Gender and sexual deviance of all kinds are likewise camp adjacent because they often reveal how absurd the mechanics of repression can be. And then it goes on to talk about like Gracie, who is an abuser. Um, and like her investment in appearing like she is not, then I, this part I think is particularly good for something to be truly camp. However, its presentation has to align with the destabilizing worldview. If the subject, the camera or the direction is too knowing, the effect can become satirical and in some cases cringe. But Haynes never allows the artificial fantasist narratives of Gracie and Elizabeth to overshadow the anguish that Melton conveys. As Elizabeth becomes more entranced by Gracie's story, her performance as Gracie becomes more campy and less effective. Meanwhile, Gracie's performance of the role of perfect housewife fails to convince anyone but herself. So while there might be these moments of camp, the whole thing is not. Yeah. The moments of Into clear realization of harm, clear exploration of the mechanics of abuse yeah. are not camp. Yeah. Like we're, it's getting into the nuances of camp, but it is not in itself as a whole camp. How do you feel about the, the relation of camp to May, December and kind of just everything that's going on with camp in popular culture? I think being able to have um, that conversation as a way to think about the, like the usefulness of camp as a lens and as a like, like something can have camp as a tool mm -hmm. that isn't all camp. Yes. And I think that's what Todd Haynes is doing here. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, so I read this um, quote about the film from a reviewer that I thought just encapsulated everything I thought about the film. I think this film is going to be a uh, essential piece of cinema for the rest of time. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's only going to get more resonant and we're only going to like everybody's only going to see more in it the more we revisit it um because the first time you watch it it's just kind of kind of a gog at least i was mm -hmm. and i know i'm going to get so much more out of it i think all of the performances are incredible i think it's an incredibly uncomfortable film there's a lot of despicable people in this film um but this really encapsulated how i felt about it so this is from uh a writer bill jabiri said that this movie is quote very funny and light on its feet, but also a deeply uncomfortable movie. Haynes uses the trappings of camp to draw attention to the disconnect between what's happening on screen and our response to it. It feels at times like the director himself is looking for the right tone with which to tell the story. He doesn't know exactly how to feel about all of this, so he feels all the things and makes sure we do too. It's well put. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's... I think, yeah, it is more nuanced. And I like that word in two of the trappings of camp and exploring that the film doesn't necessarily know which lens, while knowing which lens it wants to tell the story through, but it, it makes me as a viewer not sure how to feel in certain moments, which makes for a really compelling film that draws you in. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting. It's not an easy watch. Um, like it's quite uncomfortable and it's confronting you with that discomfort and how you feel about it. And we're getting pretty heady about it too. We are. <laughs> like, we're like we are actively delving into it and wanting to understand it a little bit further. But just for somebody that's maybe more of a just want to sit down and plunk it on kind of thing. I'd be really curious how my mom would feel about it. Because uh, she's, she would hate it. I feel like your mom <laughs> because would hate she's, it. But she knows about the Mary Kay Letourneau story. Um, so I would, yeah, I would be curious. But I, I want to revisit this one probably many times. There's going to be a lot of graduate theses written about it, I'm sure. Um, it's so funny when I was talking to people at work about it who also watched it. I said then, and this was the day after we watched it, I'm like, I don't know if I would watch it again. But since kind of reading more about it and then now having this conversation, I'm like, nah. Like to see it again because I feel like I could get something different from it and learn something new on a on a subsequent watch. Yeah. How did May December make you feel? An admiring discomfort. How did it make you feel? Increasingly tightening tension. Ooh, yeah. It's the name of the game for movies this week, with the exception of this next one. Yeah, we're gonna go back a little bit, get out of twenty twenty three and the and the yucky plucky a little bit, and then we're gonna go revisit. Pretty important film to the two of us. It's 2004's comedy drama romance film, Garden State. It was written and directed by Zach Braff, and it stars Zach Braff as Andrew Largeman, Natalie Portman for a doubleheader double this week, as Sam, Peter Sarsgaard as Mark, and Ian Holm as Gideon Largeman. Synopsis, a quietly troubled young man returns home for his mother's funeral after being estranged from his family for a decade. We're getting out of the yucky plucky, but we're still in the grief. <laughs> it's still the name of the game. What do you think of Garden State? Um, yeah, so Garden State is a movie that me and you both really liked when we were younger, and I feel like that's not uncommon for millennials <laughs> for Garden State to have been kind of an essential piece of cinema for them. But it's also, I think, one of the main films that gets kind of propped up as the problematic 2000 cinema mm -hmm. as like the encapsulation of films that millennials thought were really fantastic that perhaps have some more insidious or toxic elements to it or are cringe now yeah. for lack of a better word. So you and I have not watched this in a really long time. Yeah. Um, it's funny. We own it on Blu-ray, but I feel like I bought it at a time when I still really loved the movie. I'm like, oh, and Blu-rays were just becoming a thing. I'm like, gotta get Garden State on Blu-ray, of course. But I don't think we watched it. We maybe watched it when we first got it. We haven't watched it in like 10 years, maybe. Yeah, I'm going to say at least a decade. And it's nerve-wracking to go back and visit something that you really liked that for any number of reasons you don't feel so great about now. Like we've talked about this several times on the show with the fact that there's a lot of Johnny Depp movies that mean a lot to me, but I don't support him as a person or artist anymore. Um, and how do you reconcile that with like these films that he's not the only person involved in? Now this is a different kind of thing because it's not about a director or an actor or like something we've learned about those people, but it's about the film itself mm -hmm. and kind of where it stands in this, you know, two thousands. The Audis are tough. Yeah, this conversation about language and whose stories are being told. And, you know, I we got made fun of a lot in, you know, latter end of high school and beginning of our, our young adulthood for being hipsters. Mm -hmm. And this kind of encapsulates like the hipster trend, um, the indie trend. And 
I haven't heard the word hipster in a long time. But we used to get that, like, people used to ribbingly call us hipsters. All the time. Right? Like, especially in our family and, like, our um, my older siblings and, and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's you go and revisit this and you think, well, this is going to ruin it forever. Mm-hmm. In, in not revisiting, it hasn't yet be, been ruined and this will be, like, the nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Before we actually talk about what rewatching it was like, do we want to talk about our history with it a little bit? Yeah. Why don't you get into yours first? I literally don't remember the first time I watched it. <laughs> That's okay. But I think my older sister, Britt, might have shown it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know she had the soundtrack. She actually had really good taste in music. And then she like got all of her CDs stolen out of her vehicle. And she had like a binder full of them. And I think it was just so dejecting that she never really picked music back up. It's a really sad story. She just was so dejected that like this collection of... This collection of CDs she'd been working on forever and spent so much money on all got taken. Oh, yeah. I, and it was be, like, what's the point in trying to rebuild that library back up? Oh, yeah. I'd be fucking obliterated. That yeah. would that would be crushing. So anyway, that's a really sad story. Um, but yeah, I don't remember the first time I watched it. I do remember that when I watched it and, and over the many, many, many subsequent viewings, I really related to what this film was saying about like not feeling at home in your family. Mm. That was something I really felt as a young person, especially after my parents separated, but before as well. And really struggling with feelings of discomfort, like in my literal physical household, but also within like my family structure and the emotional and relational parts of my immediate family structure. Um, And that wasn't something I had necessarily seen on film in a way that took it seriously. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the next time I would see that is kind of like Royal Tenenbaums, but that one's a little kind of going in a little bit of a di- different direction. I also really related to the idea, like the hope that this film has for if you don't feel at home in your family, you will find family in others, mm-hmm. which I thought was really beautiful. And then like kind of culminating culminating with that idea of like, it's okay to not be okay and to say that you're not okay. And even if your family won't recognize that, which is how I felt a lot of my childhood and probably still feel now I just don't live with them anymore um other people will be there to say it's okay for you to not be okay and I see that like another person will say I see that and that's okay even if these other people don't Mm -hmm. and honestly all of that still feels true in the film to me and and because those were some of my first moments of like seeing that on film I've seen it in much more nuanced ways in literature and and film since then and television but this was kind of my first exposure to like seeing that in a character, recognizing myself in that and being like moved and kind of soothed a little bit by it. Mm. Then of course the soundtrack rips. Mm -hmm. Um, This was my introduction to the shins who are now continue to be some of my favorite music. Um, And, and like every, everybody seems to feel that way. Like I was wearing a, the shins pullover the other day from when we saw them in concert and my principal at my school was just like, what does your sweater say? Like, I was just walking down the hallway and he yells at me and I said, the shins. And he goes, oh, new slang. One of my favorite songs. Changed my like, life. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to be like, oh, probably from Garden's Day, right? And I just I just loved this movie so much. And it was one of those ones, kind of like how After Sun feels to me now, of like showing this to somebody felt vulnerable. Like showing this to somebody felt like I'm I'm expressing part of who I am and how I feel to you. And that's a vulnerable kind of scary act. Um, I skipped English class to show the boy I was courting in high school this and he liked it. Nice. 
I also showed him Donnie Darko. We were on kind of this, like we'd skip class and go to his house. Um, we had like a nice kind of like TV room in the basement. Um, and we'd watch movies together before we officially started dating. Uh, and I just remember that moment of being like, I'm going to show this to him. I'm so excited. Mm. So it's like had an important place in my life. And then, you know, on another level, the first time you and I reconnected after high school, we watched Scrubs. Yeah. So it's kind of cute. <laughs> yeah. You tell me about your Garden State history. Garden State was such a pillar for me in discovering more independent films. I remember the first time that I watched it and it was actually my family went to Blockbuster and rented a bunch of movies and this was one of them. I think that I, I don't think that I picked it. Like I think that one of my parents picked it, but I was intrigued by it and we put it on and my parents didn't like it. Of course. (laughs) But I really liked it. I'm just like, holy shit. Like it just kind of, really blew me away and just hit me in a way I couldn't necessarily describe, but the, the themes, the music, everything about it just coalesced into speaking to my soul as probably a 15, 16 year old person. So I just remember while we still had it rented, I kind of squirreled it away to my bedroom and I would just (laughs) love it on my own and, and just rewatch it and rewatch it till we had to return it. And then I eventually just bought it for myself and I watched it a whole bunch. But (laughs) the, the thing I remember most about Garden State is that any crush that I was courting in high school and I had a lot of crushes in high school, this was usually the first movie that I'd want to show them. So same, same. Yeah. Absolutely. So we did the same thing. Like I we would go on like a first date or a a early date and then it'd be like coming back to my house. Can you pass the garden state test? Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head and I never articulated it this way, but I think it is definitely showing this vulnerability in like this movie affected me and is such a reflection of my tastes and kind of what is resonating in my heart right now. I want to share this with you and share this vulnerability and we'll see how you react to it. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, honestly, when, I sh- when I've watched After Sun, particularly with my oldest sister, and she wasn't impacted by it the way that I was, I was like, oh, there's something fundamentally then about me that I was using this film as a conduit to have a conversation with you about that you just shut down. Yeah. Which means we're not going to get to have that conversation. And I feel like this movie wouldn't be that for me anymore. It wouldn't be the thing that yeah. I show people I feel like more recently it's been Bo Burdum's Inside and After Sun as kind of these like two pillars of like this is how I'm feeling right now mm-hmm. um, but there is a vulnerability and like there's a part of me that this film speaks to that I don't know how to say to you in words Yes, and I'm hoping that this film can say that and then maybe we'll have the courage to actually put words to it yes and I think that there is also some power wrapped up in this movie because I did like Scrubs and Scrubs is a pretty silly show on the whole. So seeing a bit of this 180 for Zach Braff specifically in being an actor was also a big deal. It's just like, oh, people are not what they seem on television. (laughs) It can be different. Um, But then going into young adulthood, when I worked at Blockbuster, this was my go-to rec for people. 
I was always making people rank Garden State <laughs> and not everybody liked Garden State, but it was always they would rent it. The regulars would come in and then I'd be like, what do you think? And it was a lot of, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there a funny kind of serendipity to you and me knowing each other in high school, being friends, not super close friends, but friends in high school, yet going around showing Garden State to these people we had crushes on and were courting, yet not to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just had to, had to wait till the right moment. Yeah, um, so we have some, we both have some history with this film. This was also like my go-to rainy day movie. Oh, 100%. I, I mean, even more than that, the soundtrack was like my go-to rainy day soundtrack. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention too, I don't know if you knew this, and like this is pretty cool, is that it actually won a Grammy. Like, oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, it won a Grammy for best compilation soundtrack for a motion picture. And Zach Braff was like the soundtrack I didn't know supervisor. That. So yeah. uh, that like, that's, and it's so well-deserved. This soundtrack is so fucking good. I don't, you know, I don't care for the image in heap, but um, I know you don't. Other than that, I do really like the soundtrack. And even I don't often put this soundtrack on anymore um, on a rainy day, but I do listen to Port of Morrow by the Shins a lot on rainy days. Mm. That and um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a band of horses album that I often listen to a lot. Oh, yeah. I rainy. can see the cover. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think it's like Cease to Something. Mm. Um, doesn't matter. Let's talk about then actually revisiting this. I think we've talked very nicely about what the film once meant to us. But then that's a scary thing, right? If like this film meant that much to you then. And it wasn't just, oh, I liked it. It was cool. Like I'm fine to not really love Quentin Tarantino movies anymore. They didn't mean anything to me beyond like Fight Club as well. Like it was just cool cred. It was just a cool movie. But this is something different. There's an emotional core to it attached to it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we started rewatching it, I was like, oh, my goodness. I know this film back to front. Oh, yeah. I kind of forgot that I that I've seen it so many times. Oh, yeah. Now, the biggest critiques of it now, of course, are the like sensitive boy manic pixie dream curl dynamic. Um, and this is kind of one of the key films that's talked about when you talk about a manic pixie dream girl. And then also the like the ableism in the language. Um, yeah. And I think to a degree also in like Andrew's mom and like the way she's talked about um, and the way that her like her disability is used as like a shorthand for a insufferable life. Yes. Of course, I think within the film, it's the way that her husband sees it as an insufferable life that makes it one, yeah. not her disability itself. But there is... Yeah, it's it's really disappointing when you watch a film and there's ableist slurs in it, and yeah, that is such a such they, a staple of the aughts and the nineties, I would say. And like, it's so unfortunate because they just hit it over the head multiple times in a row. Yeah, you're like, okay, are we scene. through this yet? And then it's like, nope, bam, not bam, yet. Bam. Yeah. And then I mean, for sure, Natalie Portman is a manic pixie dream girl. So the term manic pixie dream girl was actually coined in a review for the film Elizabeth Town which I've never seen. Interesting. I'm um, talking about the character of Kirsten Dunst. I don't feel like that's what people usually prop up as the main example. Now I would say garden States, one of the key ones. Um, the person who coined the term obviously didn't know it was going to become what it is now. Nathan Rabin um, defined it as quote, one dimensional existing only to provide emotional support to the protagonist or to teach him important life lessons while receiving nothing in return exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer directors to teach a broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. So 
where a female character only exists to teach a young sensitive man that he's worthwhile. And she's yep. not. Let's let's be honest. Yeah. She's quirky and and how great of him that he likes the quirky girl. And so that's hard to watch now. Especially with somebody as talented as Natalie Portman, who's like a fucking powerhouse and can no doubt and has proven so can hold down a movie completely on her own and be an absolute badass that she's just kind of relegated to this. Like, I, I mean, I think she does a really good job in it, to be honest. Oh yeah. Like there's no doubt that they got some fucking talented people in this movie that are really good at the material at delivering the material they're given. But there are those disappointing aspects throughout. The thing about watching this movie, though, and I've been using this language in my letterbox review and in like talking with people afterwards that I'm done being embarrassed at things I used to like. I'm just done with that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I don't need to apologize for things I used to like. I can speak speak about what I thought of them them then why they meant something to me and how I feel about them now. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I kind of don't believe in guilty pleasures. No, but th- but this is beyond that, right? In this like tripping over yourself to say, I don't like this anymore, you know, or like, or that was bad. This thing I liked was bad. And mm. I think you can talk about like what's, yeah, the mani- manic pixie dream girls, that sucks. Yeah. The ableism, that sucks. But there's also some stuff in this film that still really works for me. And, you know, yes. it is from the 2000s. Zach Braff was in his early 20s when he wrote and directed it. <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, this movie still spoke to me, mm-hmm. you know, and so there's still a lot about it that really works for me. And I know nostalgia is a big part of that and like how it's bringing me back to those moments. But what I'm more interested in now than being like, oh, I'm so embarrassed that I liked this movie as I watch it is being like, wow, look at what this movie meant to me, even as I shift my perspective on what does and doesn't work for me in the film now. And so just having that grace and that tenderness for these things that meant something to me rather than dismissing them and saying that they suck now. Yeah, I, I'm i with you on that. And I think that's really beautiful. And what an, another great aspect to that rewatching it now is that I found that I was just making new discoveries about it and new ways that it resonates with me. I mean, in a week uh, where we've been talking about grief and loss in our personal lives, this has some really, really nicely put things to say about allowing yourself to feel and allowing yourself to sit in your grief and deal with it in a new way or the way that is best for you. And that's some really thoughtful shit coming from somebody in their early 20s. Yeah, there's still some, you know, there's a big, confront, maybe not big, there's a confrontation scene between Andrew and his father that I think still really works and Mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a line in there you know where he like acknowledges and forces his dad to see whether his dad agrees with him or does anything with that beyond that point of like this wasn't his fault he was a little kid you know and and that line used to get me then and it still got me now and so I think certainly we didn't watch this and I and I went oh I want to watch this all the time yeah maybe I won't watch it for another 10 years but there's a lot of it that meant something to me and was highly important to me at a formative time in my life that still works for me now, even though the movie as a whole is no longer my favorite. Yeah. Um, and I've never really liked the ending. 
Yeah, it's pretty. You know me. I'm not much for romance. I, I think that the romance, the romance stuff it hit me and resonated with me a little bit more when I was a younger person. But watching it now, it's it is a little bit cringe. But my my sentiments and my feelings about it are are pretty much the same as you. Like, it's not the best thing ever. I don't want to watch it all the time. But I'll it's not making it into your letterbox top four. Unfortunately not. <laughs> but I'll never be able to divorce it and its importance from my younger self and just my overall film journey. Because without Garden State, it wouldn't have opened up my desire to seek out other films like it or more independent films. Like this was the start of a very important piece of my film journey. And I'll forever be grateful to this movie for that. And I'm I'm happy that it wasn't an absolute disaster <laughs> revisiting it now, that there is still things I can pull from it and there's still beauty I can see in it, despite all the things that aren't that good or are more difficult to get through. Also, some of the cameos hit different now. <laughs> yeah. Because we know a lot more people now and it's like, holy shit, Ann Dowd is here? What are you doing Gene here? Smart? <laughs> yeah, like there's good... The Damon uh, Lindelof of it all. <laughs> Go watch uh, Damon Lindelof's Watchmen and our favorite show of all time, The Leftovers. Yes, do it. Okay, this this was great to talk about. Real nice. What do you think of Garden State? How to make you feel? Actually, <laughs> we did just talk about what I think about it. Um, how does Garden State make me feel? It makes me feel a tenderness for the parts of me that were so influenced by this film, even if it's no longer a favorite. How about you? Just made me feel a reflective and thoughtful nostalgia. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. we're getting back into the bleak icky we went and saw a film that i was really really excited about um and super excited that it had the edmonton premiere at metro so cool um it's the 2023 drama mystery thriller eileen it was written is directed by william aldroyd and written by luke goebel and otessa moshfeg and it's based on otessa moshfeg's book it stars thomas and mckenzie as eileen shea wiggum as jim and anne hathaway as rebecca Synopsis, a woman's friendship with a new coworker at the prison facility where she works takes a sinister turn. What did you think of Eileen? So you set up for me that uh, Moshveg just loves the ick. So that immediately had me looking forward to this because I, I do like a little ick. In the trailer that I watched leading up to this, 
I found quite compelling. So I I was I was into this, and then you were you were working so hard to read the book leading <laughs> really up to this coming out. I'm like, okay, well, if she's this invested, I am very much looking forward to this as well. <laughs> I really liked the book a lot. I uh, Atessa Moshfig is a controversial figure in the book community because of her ickiness. Like her, you know, she's what Yorgos Lanthimos is in film. She is in literature, mm-hmm. but that's my jam. Yeah. I love icky fiction. I love icky film. Um, this is not, this is a dark, dark book. I think the book's a little bit darker than the movie, but the movie's pretty dark too. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film, it just revels in discomfort, but also sadness, I felt. And I just think that Thomas and Mackenzie crushes. And as soon as Anne Hathaway, her character of Rebecca rolls in, all babely and seductive, the film still does a great job in casting suspicion and doubt about her character and her motives. And we're never even, we're not, not even fully in the know of what Eileen's intentions are and what she wants to do and what her thoughts about like what's going through her head, which is so interesting because that's kind of the perspective of the book. Yeah. The book's all interiority and the book is actually narrated from her 50 years in the future. So it's a really different approach, but I, what I really love, and I think I just, in rushing to read the book, I've read the book a little too close to the film. I like when I can put some more distance right. to really see them as two different things. Moshvig wrote the screenplay and she has actually said that she thinks the film is better than the book. Interesting. Um, which is a very like Stephen King on Carrie. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of am interested. I know you've said you don't think that you'd rewatch this, but I really do think I would. It's a Christmas movie, for goodness yeah, sake. I, I keep saying that I won't rewatch this stuff and then I sit with it for like an extra day and then I'm like, no, fuck, I'll, I would rewatch this. <laughs> Um, and I think I'll like it more on rewatch, especially as I get distanced from the book. But I also really liked the book enough that I would reread it, which is good because mm. I bought it, which I didn't want to do because I'm trying not to buy books anymore. But the wait at the library was too long and I wouldn't have been able to read it before the movie. Um, I want to read you a couple like sound bites from what different people have said about this movie. Okay. Um, so Jessica Keying has called it wildly audacious, wonderly twist, wondrously twisted, deliciously deranged. Um, David Rooney has called it malevolent and playful, morbidly funny and disturbing. And Alyssa Wilkinson has called it dark, dank and disturbing. Feels like it's got dirt, dirt beneath its fingernails. Mm. And I feel like all of that is really accurate. Um, Jessica Kean goes on to say, quote, the movie making terminology is apt because this is a film that is practically drunk on the possibilities of cinema pumping a recklessly modern energy through a plethora of classic Hollywood genres. It moves sometimes sinuously, sometimes with a lurching abruptness from Circean romantic melodrama to film noir into black comedy horror coming to rest somewhere in the realms of one of the more fucked up Hitchcock thrillers. Jesus Christ. These descriptions (laughs) are so good. Yeah, but it is, it is all of that. And I was really, um, it's set in the sixties and I thought that they did such a good job with that. Mm -hmm. And I was really impressed with how they, managed to take some of that interiority of Eileen and, and how she feels about herself and put that through visuals and through these kind of fantasy moments that had people, the audience gasping, um, clutching their chest. It was a really interesting audience experience. Cause it the was. reactions were like quite big. It wasn't as interesting because for films that we see at Metro, uh, Metro very <laughs> lovingly 
likes every single review of someone who follows them, who sees a movie that they were playing, Mm -hmm. even if it's a bad review. (laughs) And most people like with the Royal Hotel didn't like this. So there's this unique experience when we see a movie at Metro that we also get an immediate sense of what other people in the very audience we were in thought of the movie. Yeah. Most people didn't like this. Yeah. Most people gave it like a two or said it was bad. Um, I liked it. I liked it too. I didn't love it. It's not my new favorite movie, but I quite liked it. I think it's this simmering, like simmering's the best word until it has moments of explosion. It's icky. It's dark. It's well acted. It's well shot. It's another like bleak Christmas movie. If you like some of those to counter the artificial cheer. And honestly, I think maybe this one is salt burn for the girlies. Salt burn for the girlies. Yeah, I can I can see Or salt burn for the lesbians? Salt burn for the sapphics? Because <laughs> I mean salt burn is also for the girlies and the gays, let's be let's be clear. But yeah. But like the way that its twists and its mysteries or light is shone on these mysteries in both if you're comparing salt burn to this, which you don't need to, but it made me feel the same way. I'm just like not in a one's better than the other, but in no, a, no, that no. would be a great double feature. Yeah. And the way that the those things are delivered for me totally work and lifted the experiences in both watching both of those movies like that. I was so drawn in by this movie and I so enjoyed the process of watching it. I enjoyed the audience reaction around, around us because there's some moments of punctuation throughout the film that got some gasps from the audience. And I feel like it was during moments where, yes, you should gasp during this. It'd be like a moment of something violent happening. And in a world we where we're inundated with violence, I think that that is the appropriate reaction to something violent happening. Yeah. Which makes me feel a little bit of comfort in that there's people in the world that also recognize that <laughs> there's some real bad dad energy in this. In, in this multiple movie. ways. This is another one where on the one hand, like with May, December, I'm like, I could see how it'd be so wonderful to know as little about it as possible. In fact, um, this because Metro is playing this for two full weeks, which is fairly rare for a new film. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been playing the trailer a lot. And while I was in the midst of reading the book, I would like put my, my head down. Cause I'm like, once I've started reading the book, I'll be able to like figure out what the trailer's saying. Mm-hmm. But like May, December, there's some pretty damn triggering stuff in this. And so I think I would say approach this film with caution and perhaps look some stuff up about it if there's like some hard news for you in cinema yeah. um, or in art in general um, because yeah there's some some really upsetting elements in this that are talked about at length and in quite descriptive language um, so I would be I think it would be unwise to say just go into this without knowing anything about it Yeah, I mean... Depending on who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked on the show before of our hard nose, and one of them in in film is animals being killed on film. Or, like, genuinely distressed or hurt in the process of making a film. Yeah, like, that is a hard no for us, and we've seen films... We've seen films even recently where that's happened, and it is extremely upsetting, and it made us want to wish that we had known that going in. And... I think that I like the way that you said that if you do have any hard nose or if there are things that you wish that you wouldn't have known before going into a movie, looking those things up beforehand, never a bad thing. Yeah. And a film that's going to 
you know, and there's, there's lots of websites to look up particular things, right? Like, uh, does the dog die does more than just, um, dog death, but it's a great place to look if you want to know if an animal dies in a film, um, does the dog die.com. And we've been really, I've been really grateful for there's folks that like friends that we have that now know that are hard know about animal harm will be like, Hey, if you were planning on going to see this movie that's playing at Metro, like maybe don't, which is really good. And, and I often like, I, I'll say to my students in creative writing, even like giving a quick content warning, like really in the style of Netflix, you know, like mm. bloody scenes, like moments of gore can just be helpful to someone. And, and I always give the example of never have I ever, where I say, I can handle a dad dying in a film. Of course I can, but my dad died and my dad died of a heart attack. So sometimes when I, and and unexpected, we didn't know it was going to happen. So I didn't know that was going to happen in the first episode of never have I ever. And when it did, it was really, it was really upsetting, really shocking, really impacted me. And I was fine. But had I known that going in, I would have been prepared for it. Yeah. So it's not like folks are going to be like, even with pink flamingos, if we had known about the chicken scene, I don't think we wouldn't have not seen it, but we would have known to like, okay, at this scene, maybe leave the theater or maybe avert our eyes um, or just be prepared that we're going to be really upset. It's about, it's not about being like, I don't think anyone who's listening to our show feels this way, but it's just about letting people have knowledge and then they can do something with that. So yes, this is one to maybe look some stuff up about because it is icky, it is dark and it, it knows it and it goes there. Yeah. This is a film that is not afraid to show some true bleakness of humanity. I just love that description by Alyssa Wilkinson of it's got dirt beneath its fingernails. Yeah. It's a perfect way to describe it. I do want to rewatch it. I think I'll like it more on a rewatch. Yeah. I thought it was well acted. I thought it was well shot. I love a new Christmas classic that isn't what you'd expect for a Christmas classic. How did it make you feel? Mesmerized by its discomfort. How did it make you feel? A simmering discomfort. Ah. So we both agree. Discomfort. Discomforting. Okay. Final film of the week. We watched the 2023 drama slash drama slash thriller. Leave the world behind. It was written and directed by Sam Esmail based off the novel by Ruman Alam. It stars a lot of heavy hitters. We have Julia Roberts as Amanda Mahershala Ali as GH Ethan Hawke as Clay Mahala as Ruth, Farrah McKenzie as Rose, Charlie Evans as Archie, and Kevin Bacon as Danny. Synopsis. A family's getaway to a luxurious rental home takes an ominous turn when a cyber attack knocks out their devices and two strangers appear at the door. What'd you think of Leave the World Behind? Well, I love Sam Esmail. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were so excited for this. Mr. Robot is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's in that top tier. Likewise. Um we really aren't the TV people we used to be. And more than ever, we kind of just rewatch things that we know we love. And this is one that watching this movie immediately, I was like, I want to rewatch Mr. Robot, but we've been trying to rewatch Twin Peaks and failing at it. So probably <laughs> putting Mr. Robot onto the um, docket is not great. But if you've never seen Mr. Robot and you are interested, now is a great time to watch it because season four is set. At, the final season is set at Christmas. Yeah. So if you start it now and you binge the shit out of it, which I'm not a binge watcher, but if, if that's you, if that's you and you can time it so that you're watching season four, like right leading up to the holidays, highly recommend. Yeah. I thought that this gave that Sam Esmail like tense, creepy techno thriller 
that he's got in Mr. Robot. It doesn't have the grit of Mr. Robot. To me, this is kind of like if Mr. Robot was all from, um, what's that rich guy's Tyrell? Name? Tyrell's wife's point of view. Uh, if like the yeah. whole show was just from like Tyrell's wife and daughter's mm. point of view, then that would be this movie. Mm. Um, because we're never with like the equivalent of F society. We never see those people in, in this. And so I definitely think I'm more the side that he's looking at in Mr. Robot is the side I'm more interested in. And in fact, when Mr. Robot does kind of go into like the rich Fox world, those are the episodes I'm less interested in when we like get (laughs) into like evil corp and stuff. Um, But I still really liked this movie. Yeah. The more I've sat with it, the more I've liked it. I thought it was pretty, I thought it was pretty great. It sucked me right in and just held me the whole time. And I think that that's due to two things, the stellar cast and the direction of Sam Esmail. I mean, first of all, just talking about Sam Esmail and one of my favorite things coming full circle back to visual stuff. I think that the composition and the camera work that Sam Esmail chooses to do across the things that he does is some of my favorite that anybody's doing right now. But I feel like he does some particularly incredible stuff in this film there's a sequence with Mahershala Ali's character and a beach that is breathtaking. Yeah, it made me wish that I don't think it came to any theaters in Edmonton. No. But I if I had if we were guaranteed a good audience. Yeah. Um some of this would have been like amazing with like big sound and yeah. big if we design. Had, if we had the same experience we had with Godzilla minus one in AVX. Yeah. That would have been tip top. Would have been sick. Yeah. But this, like Mr. Robot, this also raises so many questions and fears about just state of the world stuff, which I'm a fan of. But there's also just this creepy element to it and the the mystery of it all. Like you, there's so many red herrings, I feel, of like you think it's this thing and then it's this thing and you're speculating along with the characters of the film. And I love that. I love that it drew me in. I'm like, okay, maybe what she's saying is is right. But then we start seeing more, more is revealed and we're over here. And I, I like that. It, it drew me in. And I feel like Sam Esmail, you know, having seen Mr. Robot, there's elements that he never explains. Yeah. And this film has that too. A lot of what we watched this week, so Eileen, Royal Hotel, and this are very divisive right now on Letterboxd. Like it's, it tends to be like, two and lower or 3.5 and higher. Mm. Not a lot of like 2.53, like not a lot of like right middle ground. Right. Um, and a lot of like four, five, two, one. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and some of the complaints I've been seeing about this film are like, well, it's so much is left unexplained. And I'm like, but as a, you know, way of thinking about our world right now, a lot of it is unexplained. And a lot of it, mm-hmm. we like, don't want an explanation to because we'd rather live in the dissonance or it's too painful to not live in the dissonance. And I think that maybe having seen Mr. Robot really like primed me for that, that he'll have these elements that almost feel like magical realism and we won't get an answer to them. And that's just part of his uh, visual and thematic language. I've also seen a lot of people like comparing this film to an M night Shyamalan film, but in a like insulting way. And I'm like, I like M. Night Shyamalan films. <laughs> I even like The Happening. So, And I get that there's some shades of Knock, knock at the Cabin and The Happening in this. So I, I get where people are coming from. 
But then I've also seen people say like, oh, if M. Night made good films, this is what it would be. And I'm like, can we stop making fun of M. Night Shyamalan? I think he does make good films. Yeah. Um, they're just for a different type of audience. Listen to our episode where we fucking wax poetic on Lady in the Water. <laughs> yeah, we we like fucking him. love Lady in the Water. And uh, right now is the moment where I talk about the really awesome M. Night Shyamalan film that I bought, film, M. Night Shyamalan shirt that I bought you for Christmas that for some reason the people I bought it from didn't, it didn't go through in their system and now it's sold out and you will never have it and it makes me so sad. If anyone wants to recreate the shirt for me, at baddad.red yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, would love that at any rate I I don't think insulting M. Night or Sam S. Mill is cool agreed um, and I quite liked this film I thought it was well acted I liked all the players in it I thought it was tense I thought it was creepy I thought it was like you said the more I sit with it the smarter I think it is yes a lot of folks don't like the ending I think the ending is brilliant mm-hmm that being said, I love an ending that like kind of abruptly happens and makes you be like, why did it end there? Yep. I've been hearing language of like, they just didn't know where to end it. So they ended it there. And I'm like, no, I think that's a very purposeful ending. And I think it's a very thoughtful, thematically resonant ending. And the more I think about that ending, the more I like it. It's so interesting because I feel like, and this is just me, but I feel like films like this or May, December, that get dropped on Netflix and it's like a big deal movie. So I feel, and stuff that's on Netflix, I feel is so much more accessible than any other streamer and everybody just jumps on it that a lot more of this discourse and these kinds of reviews start kind of coming out of the woodwork and there's just a larger conversation because of its accessibility. So so you cut, and I feel like Netflix audiences, I could be way fucking off in saying this, are more polarizing. Like there's less like in the middle and there's more like I fucking hated it or I loved it. I mean, I don't know. But what I will say is for me, and I have to shake myself out of this a little bit, when it comes to Netflix right away, it feels like a straight to DVD. Mm. Which in the past, like pre-streaming services, straight to DVD meant it wasn't good. It meant it wasn't good enough to get into the theaters. And yeah. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's no. like this is the person who won the bidding war. This is the Netflix is trying to get prestige stuff and probably beat out somebody like Searchlight or something to get May December. But my brain still does ah straight to Netflix. It must not be that good. That's so it's so tricky because I'm I'm so with you there. But right after this movie ended, I said to you, I'm like, I'm so, I'm also so grateful that Netflix picked this up because that means that so many fucking eyes are going to see a Todd, a Todd Haynes movie. Yep. So many people are going to see a Sam Esmail movie. Yep. And that's awesome. I love that. No, I just have to shake myself out of that because I don't think it's true. I think it can be true, but right. I don't think it is true. I think Netflix wants to get these bigger, more prestige movies to make that not be the narrative. But mm-hmm. my brain still does that with you regardless of that i mean i think mileage will vary for a person on this film yes i think like with the royal hotel if you go into it with a like this is at times hyperbolic like much more than mr robot when mr robot is hyperbolic it's playing with surreality in a way that this film isn't Mm. like it's playing with reliability of narration and in a really like interesting and thoughtful and nuanced way whereas this is more just like hyperbolic thriller it feels like in a way that I loved, it felt evocative of some of my favorite like aughts apocalypse films yeah. where it's like big and it's intense and it's thrilling. And there's a scene with Tesla's 
Holy shit. Let me tell you. Um, so well done, too. God damn it. So that big scale of it actually reminded me of some of those blockbuster films that came out in the 2000s that I really loved. And I think that Sam Esmail's playing in that um, and then kind of bringing in his own visual style and thematic point. And I pers- it worked for me. I really liked it. Well, and Sam Esmail was on a little... Um, a little featurette that Letterboxd did and he was talking about some of his favorite films, but he also revealed that he has a Letterboxd account and while he doesn't use it to actively track all the movie he's, movies he's watching, he made a companion list of reference films for this film and there's so much stuff on there that he's clearly wearing his references and the things that he is pulling from on his sleeve. I mean, one of his references was Panic Room and there's a lot of Panic Room stuff. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking this. at that list right now. Day After Tomorrow is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, Funny Games, which I definitely totally. felt. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mother uh, Signs. Yeah. Like, it's like he's, he is. He's saying that, that that. So I'll just read the whole list. It was um, North by Northwest, Earthquake, The Towering Inferno, The Day After Tomorrow, The Shining, Miracle Mile, Threads, High and Low, Vertigo, Fearless, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Mother, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Seven Days in May, Funny Games, Chinese Roulette, The Master, Signs, The Thing, The Mist, Parasite, Carnage, The Beguiled, Panic Room, Melancholia, and The Trigger Effect. So I think when you see that, I'm somebody that like the more I engage with something and the more I hear about the intentionality behind it, the more I appreciate and like it, even if it's not my favorite thing ever. Yeah. Like the films that I teach, I teach the village. I think the village is a masterclass now because we stop and we look at all the intentionality behind it. And, you know, for all the divisiveness about Saltburn, you know, some of the stuff that Emerald Fennell has said, um, like analyzing specific scenes, and then you see the intentionality that went into it. It just makes me really appreciate it regardless of how I feel about the film, although I did like Saltburn. Yeah. And so when you look at that and you go, well, he wanted signs. He wanted the day after tomorrow, but then he also wanted funny games and he also wanted mother and he also wanted parasite and he also wanted panic room. I'm like, I see all of that in this. 100%. And then with his own Sam S mail infused into it. So I liked it. I think um, lots of people will and lots of people won't. And Mm -hmm. if you watch the trailer, I think you'll have a good idea of if, where you'll stand on that. Yeah. And also friends is a central plot point, which feels timely for us. Cause we finished rewatching it for like the millionth time recently. Yes. Two things uh, for me that I really loved about this slash found interesting about this. Interesting was that it's executive produced by the Obamas, Barack and Michelle, which is really, we saw that and it was like, wow, how'd that happen? But all right. Interesting. Second was all of the Mr. Robot tie-ins. There, I guess that Amanda at one point, her laptop is an E-Corp laptop. Yeah, I, I read this afterwards. I didn't notice it. And then she's got a book, the book that uh, the Red Wheelbarrow guy wrote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they reference something that happens that I'm pretty sure is a direct reference to something that happens in Mr. Robot. So that would be setting this and Mr. Robot in the same universe. And, and that this happened chronologically after Mr. Yeah. Robot. At one point, I'm like, this is just a Mr. Robot tie-in. They're going to... Rami Malek's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no. He's just interested in making bad movies now. Yeah. 
but I enjoyed this quite a bit. I've enjoyed, I enjoy it even more now that we've had this conversation. How to make you feel word of the week this week, tension. It made me feel tension with lingering thematic thought. You completely floored by its craft and performances. All right, let's talk about dads. Who is your bad dad of the week? There was a lot of options. Truly. I chose Jim Dunlop from Eileen. Um, funny, his name is that because he's also the person that makes the guitar picks that I use. And are they Dunlop guitar picks? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, he's nasty, he's cruel, and he's unrelenting in both of those things. He's just, he's just bad. I, I don't want to get into any more detail than that, but he's just a nasty customer. No, thank you. Who's your nominee? So there really were, Rad Dad was hard this week, but there are a whole lot of bad dads. I picked Elizabeth, Natalie Portman's character in May, December. Good pick. Um, the reason I picked this is obviously Gracie's bad dad too, but Gracie is that kind of, you know, her character played by Julianne Moore is like obviously a criminal, obviously a manipulator, obviously an abuser. Then you look at how Elizabeth comes in and uses her celebrity because we see at the beginning that people are fascinated with her. She uses her celebrity to infiltrate this family and cause additional harm to um, Joe and his children without any thought of what impact this is going to have on their lives. And there's a particular moment where she does something I think is so unforgivable. Um, she really doesn't consider how these people have experienced such harm and this is going to continue to harm them. And even worse, she deludes herself into thinking that this has some greater purpose. And in that, that's how she mirrors Gracie more than anything else, where she thinks that what she's doing is justifiable. Um, and I just thought, when we talk about that kind of insidious bad dad, you know, and when I really think the film is ultimately like she's the protagonist, I think, Elizabeth. Mm. Um, it's her character arc, it's her story. Um, We're entering these people's lives with through her. her, and the film ends with her as well. And I just, she's bad. Yep. Uh, I'm on board with that. Okay. Then, uh, Elizabeth, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Red Dad, who'd you pick? This was hard. Yes. I picked uh, Julie Garner's character of Hannah from the Royal Hotel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I said this because she recognizes her own discomfort and speaks up for it. And particularly think of all these moments of like, she's called a really nasty term repeatedly. Mm -hmm. It really upset me in the Royal Hotel. Um, she's repeatedly told to smile and she doesn't. <laughs> and I love that. Um, and you know, there's a point at which her friend... Uh, played by Jessica Henwick is just like making some like really upsetting choices and she continues to perfect protect and stand by her friend even when her friend has not been protecting and standing by her and ultimately she seeks being heard seeks retribution seeks a way to escape that discomfort and ensure that it doesn't happen to anybody else and I well yes it's done hyperbolically and metaphorically I, I really liked it yeah she, she was also on my short list. I ended up going up, uh, going with GH from Leave the World Behind, mostly because he obviously cares a lot and loves his family. But I feel like I like that he approaches the many situations he's put in with kindness and understanding, both from wanting to convey understanding of what somebody else might be going through and wanting to provide comfort so that he can bring himself into a situation 
And I feel like he's just overall a good person to have on your side. Is he a flawless person? Absolutely not. But I feel like as a father figure, he's somebody I would not be afraid to be my dad. <laughs> he does seem like there's some moments where he's trying to like protect his daughter in a way that perhaps is not what's in her best interest. But I do think he reflects on those moments. Mm-hmm. So I was going to pick him, but I also picked him for something else. And I didn't know if we're allowed to like double dad. Well, Are we allowed to double dip our dads? Well, have we done that before? I also have somebody else to mention later. <laughs> but I, do, I, he was going to be my pick, but then I didn't want to double dip. So I didn't pick him, but we'll pick him and we'll maybe just double dip. Okay. Double dad dip. Um, so GH. Be our, be our dad. dad. So we both have bonus daddies. <laughs> yeah. And from the sounds of it, they're different. So my bonus daddy is Mahershala Ali's character of JH. I think he's so handsome and so dapper. And that scene where he's dancing to the records. Also, I read a great little piece about how leave the world behind is the best argument for physical media um, <laughs> that we've seen in a long time between the records and the DVDs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and considering our title of, uh, Last week's episode, I think that's particular, like an episode recently. I think that's funny. Um, the 92nd episode was the perks of being a physical media collector. Okay. So anyway, do you agree? Uh, I I do. My daddy is Rebecca from Eileen. Anne Hathaway. Really? Oh, yeah. I thought Have she, you always thought Anne Hathaway's a babe? I'm hit or miss with Anne Hathaway. Okay. I, like, that sounds really... I mean, she's obviously a beautiful human. Like, she's, yes. she's an attractive human being, yes. but just whether she's doing the babely thing for you. And just, like, the character of Rebecca, the way that she presents herself, is just, it, it's just very babely. And Even at the end? Let's not <laughs> go there. <laughs> but, like, when we're, when we're first introduced to her, and, like, when we're in the bar, I'm just like, you can dance with me. Dance with me. <laughs> and we have two dads, two daddies. Two, two daddies. Two daddies. Yes. Okay. G.H. and Rebecca. Weet, weet woot. woot. Okay. Hit us with the rad wreck of the week. If you're somebody that celebrates Christmas, and you're also somebody like me, and I believe you, Elliot, Christmas shopping ain't your favorite thing to do. It feels like a lot of pressure, and it takes time. Um, I also love to just get responsibilities done with ASAP. So to deal with that, not fun part of having to buy Christmas presents and deal with all of that. Even though the giving of the gifts can be really fun. You and I have started a little tradition that we started last year and it's made it a lot better where we pick a night and we go to like early in December before Christmas has become like really hectic at the malls. And we go to the smaller mall in our city um, and we go on a weeknight in early December we finish up any gifts for like nibblings or any other mutual gifts we have to get. And then we split in opposite directions in the mall and get all of our stockings for each other. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a cute little tradition where we get to like, you know, have some food court food, which is always fun. Um, do it together and be like, yeah. And then, and then, and then we're done Christmas shopping after that. There's also just like this sense of risk of like, you'll never like, I, Ooh, what if we run into each other yeah. at the same store? <laughs> Don't look at <in> my bag. <laughs> yeah. We did a lot where you're like, I'm at London drugs. Don't, now I'm going to the car. Don't come here. I put them in the trunk. Um, but I guess our rad wreck is just if Christmas shopping also stresses you out, finding some kind of a tradition and like a routine to, to have with your Christmas shopping, um, especially to do it with somebody else, like a friend or a partner or a family member or all of the above. 
um, can be like a way to just gamify it kind of and mm-hmm. and make it a part of your yearly tradition rather than like a pain. Yeah. So start some kind of Christmas shopping tradition to make Christmas shopping more exciting. Yeah. Well put. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. We would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do for these double daddy devils this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.